0: Welcome to That's Awesome ID. My name is Leslie Early, and each week I will be speaking with a different guest and learning about one thing they think is awesome in the field of instructional design. All right, I am super excited today. I have fellow Design by Humanity learning experience designer extraordinaire here with me, uh, Chris Syracuse. Thank you so much for being here, Chris.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: Um, so we did meet through Design by Humanity. Um, we also, I sort of saw you a little bit more formally in the ATD Emerging Professionals Showcase. So that was a very zen presentation you did there.
1: Zen, thank you. I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> it was. It was. Very, everyone was just chilled out watching you, you know, man the, uh, what is that? What is that? Adobe Illustrator. You were doing your Adobe Illustrator jam and everyone was just chilled out watching you and it was awesome.
1: That's that's all I can really hope for. I saw some I saw some uh Bob Ross of graphic design comments and I think that was the peak of my career, honestly.
0: Yeah, you definitely need to put that on your resume. <laughs> I, sh- I should. So, um you are here today, you would like to talk about kind of cognitive load theory and how that applies to you know our role as instructional designers or e-learning developers
1: so yeah and this is this is one of those things that i'm kind of new to so um i'm 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 at that stage where i'm just learning things and it's all over the place and i'm making connections like wildly um so you know I definitely want to encourage your listeners uh, don't take what I say with a grain of salt you know do your own research, but um you know as i this is as I understand it as I see how it relates to visual design,
0: yeah, and that's kind of um so you have like the beginner's mind,
1: yeah maybe maybe so um and i wonder I wonder if uh, if it could be a boon to my experience with you know applying cognitive load, if I could just always have that beginner's mind because uh, that's one of the one of the bigger problems uh when we're talking about. Applying cognitive load theory to instructional design is how is the difference between working memory or short-term memory and long-term memory. Um, and you know, when we're something we've done something so many times for so long, um, it's loaded into long-term memory, and we can recall it whenever we need to. Um, and we, and then that recall is essentially unlimited. It's easy to underestimate how much information we're giving, because to us, that is a schema. That is unlimited. We can load as much or as, as little as we want at any time. Um, but to new learners, uh, someone dealing with novel information, your working memory is limited to about two to four elements of information mm. which is very which is probably much smaller than most people would expect. two to four elements.
0: Yeah, and I backing up to what you said about the schema, so this a schema is essentially you know someone who's an expert at something, they have, they have like, I'm trying to think of a good metaphor. It's like, there's already a framework. There's already a scaffold in your brains or a bookshelf, let's say. And so, you know, when you get new bits of information if you're already sort of an expert in your field or what you're learning, you just take that new bit of um, information and just set it on the shelf. You know exactly where it goes. You know how to organize things and you can slide the new bit in and it's totally organized. In seconds. But someone who like has no idea and does not have a schema about this topic, you give them, you know, the new piece of information and it's like they have no idea where to put it or how this fits in with everything else, which is like very difficult for a new learner to go through. So.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Um, and this applies to just our world as a whole, basically. I mean, a schema in the sense, um, with language, um, you know, if I said car, I don't have to say wheels and tires and, p- and paint and steel and engines like, uh, there's a lot to know, but, um, we can recall it instantly. We can almost, we can, we can understand so many things about the implications of that one object through the one word mm-hmm. and new learners don't have that affordance. Uh, so we have to be very conscious, um, and, and, going back to that two to four elements of information, uh, so when a learner has to process information or when they're dealing with, uh, interactivity among elements, that's when the limit drops down to about two, two to four. Mm-hmm. I think people like to, uh, references how phone numbers, um, are chunked into sets of data in three, three, and four mm-hmm. in the U S so that makes it easier for us to memorize, but that's, you know, that's a string of seven and it is. So there was work before basically John, John Sweller is the one who came up with this cognitive load theory and there's work before him by George Miller that talks about, you know, seven plus or minus two items Mm -hmm. uh, and and memorization. The reason why we now understand it as two to four is that that seven plus or minus two um, refers to unidimensional, comparison basically um just sorting memorizing a list of things and that's not what you're doing that's you rarely do anything that simple when you get new Mm -hmm. information normally you're being asked to like (laughs) you you, you're being asked a lot more of the things that you're that you're learning
0: so let's think of an example so obviously in like an e-learning or instructional um design project. You're not asking your learners to memorize or sort or do these very simple tasks that um, would be, you know, the seven plus or minus two. Um, So in these more complicated tasks, that's where this two is in my understanding correctly, like in you'd be able to handle two to four novel things at a time.
1: Right. So when it So when it comes to instructional design, we instructional designers, we love to think about our objectives, right? We love to rewind and remind ourselves, what's the point? Um, when we create instructional material, we are trying to teach someone something. We don't care if they're able to recite seven numbers. We want them to learn something. Mm-hmm. We need to encourage interactivity between the elements that they're processing in order for them to store it in long-term memory so that they can then recall it later with that infinite space that we talked about.
0: Right. So basically... As uh, instructional designers or any educator, really, you're trying to get your learner from that short-term memory, like hamster wheel, and get that information into the long-term memory. That's like the goal, right? That it's in their long-term memory. They're starting to form a schema, and they can then use that information and hopefully have a behavior change or something. So, Yeah. But it's like using cognitive load theory... How do we get them out of that short-term working memory into long-term memory?
1: Okay, so yeah, so let me let me riff on it a little bit as I understand it, and uh, as it relates to visual design, um, I think a lot of times what we do with graphic design visuals is we we use visuals for what they're great at, which is a puzzle, giving people a puzzle. When we see a picture, we just start we start trying to f- solve. Solve it. Mm -hmm. If you have a sentence, you can just read it end to end and you know what it's saying. And that's sort of true for a picture, but it's a little bit more complicated, and you kind of have to start, you have kind of have to, to, to decipher and, and infer a lot of meaning. A lot You have to do a lot more inference, I guess, with a picture than you do with a sentence, depending on, you know, the level of how abstract the image is. Mm-hmm. And that's what we like to do. I think that's what a lot of instructional designers like to do, is give you an image that will get your mind working and churning the information. It'll get you solving these puzzles, and you'll you'll see a photo example of someone doing the thing that you're being, that's being described in a sentence. But now here, the problem with that is you only get four pieces of information. So you have maybe two in your sentence and two or three, or maybe four in your picture. Um, and you're already overloaded at that point. And what really, what's really important within cognitive load theory are the different types of cognitive load, the uh, intrinsic, the, I think it's germane and extraneous. Mm -hmm. So there's some load that's automatically necessary for you to move that, move that information into a long-term schema and some that is uh, just taking up space. That's the extraneous load. And we can learn more effectively when we're not overloaded. So of course you can just kind of forget the extra pieces, stick to what you're able to process and then, you know, internal uh store that into long-term memory but Mm -hmm. it's a lot more difficult when you're having to like parse out what doesn't fit or what 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 you simply can't fit um and then the other problem with that is how can you really determine what your which ones your learner is going to pick like if you give them six things and they can only learn two you you know it's kind of up in the air whether they're going to learn the right the most important ones And so I think we get carried away thinking, well, let me just give you all the information and assume you're going to figure out which one's the most important. And, you know, if you get extra, then that's a bonus.
0: Um, Yeah. It works. That's good to keep in mind. The other thing I was thinking of is that even if you have only two points on the screen, let's say, and so you're like, okay, this should be well within the cognitive load of my learner, but you have a bunch of interactions in the screen to have to have your learner get even get to those two points. So now those each individual interaction is also sort of a, a, novel bit of information that the learner has to process. So, you know, if you're trying to teach two things, you don't want them to have to go through like six interactions to get there. <laughs> right.
1: Exactly. That's exactly, um, that brings it full circle to what we talked about with, with online learning. Um, that's exactly what's happening now is that you just can't get around the fact that people have to learn, to, they have to perform two or three new steps before they get to your information right now. And I think there are some programs, there are some, some people out there that are doing this that are kind of approaching this the right way. And I want to, I want to mention my master's program is actually, um, and they've kind of always done this um, Their The program has always been online and they're aware that new learners are going to have to learn how to navigate the system. And mm-hmm. I'll be the first to say it's way too complicated. It takes me five clicks to get to my it takes me five clicks to get to whatever I need to do for that day like just if I want to post a discussion question that's that's another two or three clicks so so I'm seven bits of navigation in and I don't really have much left to 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 say what I was going to say you know I'm kind of got to restart now um and so they they take that the first couple semesters and they're very easy on you they Mm -hmm. don't really ask a lot uh, you don't need to be logging in every day and doing tons of things they ask you to log in twice a week um and then you know they give you the, they give you your readings and basically this is time for me to create that long term memory schema that I can you know next semester I'll be flying through it i won't it won't be anything to to uh, recall that, those steps to get logged into my classes.
0: So the first semester sounds like it's it's the training wheels uh, semester, just so that you can understand the LMS that you guys are using. Exactly. Well, that's pretty smart. I mean, that's smart on their, their yeah. end. Um, so if you, right now, as you're designing a project, let's say, let's say you were to start right now developing a project, like what goes through your mind as you're trying to apply some of these some of these, um, best practices?
1: Um, I mean, the first thing would be, you know, coming from a graphic design standpoint, I want to make it look nice. I'm thinking about the colors, you know, and the, and the shapes that I'm going to bring in there. Um, but then the next step is like, do I need it? Do I need any of that? Can I just get rid of that? Um, do I, you know, I'm thinking maybe like, I want to have a very interesting looking menu that maybe it displays a progress bar as part of the menu, you know, um, like lots of lots of looping back, uh, like a menu that you can constantly access to jump around and reference things at any point. I don't like to assume people are just going to learn. I, I want them to be able to look back at the information quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, that's coming from my technical communication background. So moving to instructional design, now I have to turn that off and, and think like, okay, th- the flashy menu is one of my four items. Hmm. So maybe I maybe I cut that out and just kind of force them to go through the pro- go through the process, and then and then keep that in mind throughout the instructions or the information that I'm giving them that I need to just put less in there. Yeah, make it not so necessary for them to have to come back and reference it.
0: The other thing I wanted to talk about though is redundancy, like having you know if you have an image like you were saying and the image is communicating two things but Mm -hmm. the text is communicating two things and you and it i think maybe a rookie mistake is if the text and the image are communicating the same two things then we're okay right because it's just two (laughs) things but that's not necessarily the case
1: (laughs) Not yeah not at all that's interesting yeah you you point that out yeah um i feel like it's exactly the opposite you're you're text should, your text and image should be a, maybe able to exist on their own but they shouldn't be comfortable existing on their own you you should take a little bit from each piece you should take a little bit away from each piece so that maybe there's this overlap this venn diagram it should it should always add they should always be adding to each other um so you know it so you're not reading tooth and you're not reading an image and then reading the exact same thing in a, in a text um and it that's that's a lot that's kind of difficult to describe, uh, what I'm, what I'm trying to say. It's a lot easier to show. So, right. That's where the visual communication comes in. Um, but a good way to think of it is when you're reading, you can craft the scene, however you want it to look in your head. Um, but let's say I tell you someone's wearing a dress and I want you to know the dress is red. I can just have the picture of a red dress. Yeah. I don't have to say it's a red dress. Um, maybe a little bit of a simpler example, but you can probably extrapolate that.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So, um, for listeners, you know, I know there's so much more to talk about on this topic and we just kind of scratched the surface here. Um, but do you have any, you know, pointers or takeaways for people, uh, who are trying to kind of get into this?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll just go with a direct ask. Um, Avoid the strokes, drop shadows, and gradients. <laughs> that is probably you, you know. Let's keep it simple. Let's 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 keep people. Let's uh keep it between two to four elements of information. So there's three. Don't use strokes, shadows, or uh, drop shadows, or gradients. Um, it, basically, it's just you know you're trying to create visual interest, but you have to keep in mind that a lot of those things that do create visual interest are items. They're they're. They're, th- they're elements that we use to make judgments about the world around us. They're textures. When we see a gradient, we might m- it- it automatically start processing that and trying to figure out, is that a piece of metal that I'm looking at or a drop shadow? We're actually gathering, we're extracting information about what we're seeing from that drop shadow. Oh, it's that it's oh, three-dimensional or how far away is that object from the page? Um, and that's all things that, while it may make the Im- image more interesting, we don't need to have that information about you know, whatever slide, whatever PowerPoint or uh, learning object we're looking at.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but effects that you add on to your text, even something that simple is actually being processed as a bit of information.
1: Yeah. Right. Hmm. Yeah. And a lot of it, we do have schema for it. You know, you look at some base, that's why we have basic UI design principles that, you know, you should always add this much rounding on the corners or this much drop shadow to it because that's, that's what we expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we're when we 're faced with that kind of familiar information and it 's not so difficult so if you know if you want to use those effects, just try to at least spend a little bit of time learning what the conventions are in UI design because a lot of this you know we 're specifically we 're talking about creating user interfaces for learning to happen within mm-hmm. so that 's a good place to go if you want to be if you want to create interesting visuals, um, you can do it just don 't just try not to go wild with the with, with the strokes and the drop shadows and the gradients.
0: Um, awesome. So those are actually very valuable takeaways. Um, try not to use any of those things. And then if you do want to use some of them, like you said, just do a little bit of research. So there's a lot of um, resources out there about UX, UI, and some of those conventions. And actually, if you didn't use some of those conventions, that might also be a little bit confusing to the learner. So very right. cool. Um, if listeners would like to connect with you, um, and maybe have another longer conversation about this, if you're open to that, um, where can they connect with you or find you?
1: Absolutely. I'm always open to longer conversations. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn.
0: Do you have any portfolio or, or anything like that that people can look at?
1: Uh, yeah, my, my website is chrissyracuse.design.
0: Very cool. All right, Chris. Well, thank you so much um, for joining me on That's Awesome ID.
1: Thank you for having me. Uh, this, is, this is very fun.
0: Very fun. I hope I didn't stress you out too much.
1: <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, for a first podcast experience, I'd say it went pretty smoothly.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your day, Chris. Thank,
1: thank you for having me.